Let's read this morning. We're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, thank you once again for your word, for these words, uh, especially this morning as we meditate upon them. We look to you for revelation and insight. We look to you for um, the strength, the capacity to apply these words to our lives and change the way we live. That we may glorify you, expand your kingdom, and be a blessing to all of our family that you have given to us and to those who are not yet part of our family but you have called and are coming. God, we lift up to you this morning uh, many in our, in our family here that uh, are having difficult times this week and we pray that you would be their help in time of need, especially thinking of the family of Mohans, Lord, that you would comfort them in this time, that you would just wrap them up with your love and continue to strengthen them and hold them fast. Lord, we pray also for many other people that are struggling in different circumstances, whether great or small, whether complex or simple. We need to look to you all the time. And so we cry to you, God, that you would help us to look to you, even when we think we have it on our own, we have it figured out. We ask that you would give us mercy and grace to look to you all the time and to remind us, God, that we need you. And so we thank you for these difficult circumstances that, that do remind us that we need you and, and we thank you that you are the answer. And uh, God, just pray that you would um, be really, uh, be really real in our minds in our hearts, in our lives, and in, in our experiences. Just help us to know that you are a true God, that you never lie, that you really are more valuable, more tangible than life itself, and that these truths, as they sink into our spirit, would change who we are by your grace, by your mercy. Sanctify us, Father. Sanctify us to be a people that would reflect the glories of heaven on earth. 
Sanctify us and make us like you. Make us like Jesus. In your name we pray these things. Amen. It's good. God is good. Um, we had a funeral yesterday. Uh, it was in celebration of Colleen Mohan's life. Um, but everybody that knew her knew that this funeral would be a celebration of who God is. As far as we know, she was healthy on Wednesday and then gone on Thursday. Um, and it was sudden, but it wasn't like she wasn't prepared. She was ready. It was sudden, unexpected, but Colleen was ready. And that's what made it just a wonderful time of celebrating who God is, what he has done in her life, what he is doing in your and my life. And I think that moments like that, we get to we have to rely upon the goodness of God even though we don't understand um, but we do know <laughs> however that works uh, that he is in control we're going to read from Mark chapter 4 to start today and it's a story you probably know On that day when evening had come, he, that's Jesus, said to them, that's the disciples, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? Now, our author, Peter, would have been on that boat. He would have witnessed the wind and the waves and the mighty hand of God. And in writing First Peter, he answers the very real question, Teacher, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? It's different circumstances, but it's the same question. Do you not care that we are perishing? Today we are finishing our time in the first letter of Peter. It's the foremost book on suffering at the hands of sinful people. 
Simply, Peter says, you will suffer, but it's not in vain. Your suffering is both a gift that will strengthen your faith and a witness of God's glory and Christ's generous love. This letter is written to a group of churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And Peter makes it clear in several spots that these are Gentile Christians, new Christians, as there were no old Christians at this point, new Christians that are experiencing persecution precisely because they have begun to follow Jesus. He writes them to encourage them in the midst of their suffering and reminds them that in following Jesus, they are given a new hope that is imperishable. They are given a new identity as God's own possession and a new family being grafted into Abraham as a chosen race, chosen by God, a royal priesthood, mediators and witnesses to the world of who God is. And as a holy nation, that means set apart, a people set apart for God. This encouragement is for us today as well. If Christ is your king, he has called you to follow him. And you will be hated and mistreated because that's how they treated him. But that's not the end of the story. Christ suffered and died doing so in obedience to the will of God, and his resurrection proves his sovereignty as king, king all-powerful, king all-knowing, king all-sufficient. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And this jumps off from last week's verse, the verse before it. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why be humble? What's so special about humility? Well, for one, God opposes the proud. God stands in opposition to anyone who defies him, to all who seek independence from him. And he opposes those who exalt themselves. But isn't this ironic? God will exalt the humble and lavish grace upon them. Verse 5 speaks of humility in regards to one another. Be humble on the people level. The next verse, verse 6, speaks of humility in relation to the living God. And it seems that at the very least on the level of God, humility should be a natural thing. Little me confronted by Almighty God? Shouldn't that sound like a recipe for submission? But no. It turns out that sin has hardwired us for pride. Pride among people and pride before the great I am. C.S. Lewis writes, Pride is competitive by its very nature. That's why it goes on and on. If I am a proud man, then as long as there is a man in the world more powerful or more richer or more clever than I, he is my rival, my enemy, 
and I'm going to add, and God is, of course, more powerful, more rich, and more clever than I. The Christians are right, Lewis says. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the beginning of the world. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You might find good fellowship and jokes, friendliness even, among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. What can we gather then? Pride is blindness. It sees the world from self-centered eyes, green-colored glasses, if we can mix metaphors. It sees the world not as it is, but from a false elevation. If I can puff myself up, stand taller than I am, keep all others lower, then I can live the lie that I am something, that I am self-contained. Lewis goes on, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which, of which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. When Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, he is not speaking in a vacuum. He's giving a challenge. And it's literally as old as Israel. Peter, teaching his Gentile converts from the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures, is hearkening back to the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God that rose up against the pride of the Pharaoh of Egypt. In Exodus 5, Verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, God knows this is going to happen, and he gives his answer beforehand. Chapter 3, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and after, he will let you go. And you all know the story. God goes on to destroy Egypt in such an incredible and completely decisive way. The plagues of Egypt are basically a reversal of the creation narrative, paralleling the life of Adam, the death of the firstborn. The seas and the skies teeming with fertile animals versus the seas and the skies teeming with destructive creatures. To contrast the creation of light, it is countered by the veil of darkness, and God's hand decimates Egypt. All this to say that the mighty hand of God can crush, but Peter says that very same hand can elevate Who would you want to lift you up? Who but the hand of God? There's no actual uh, break between verses 6 and 7. So putting them together, we have, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. God is in control. In God's time, 
he will lift up the humble. He will lift up those whom he has called. Save them, rescue them, complete them. Now, verse 7 goes on to speak of anxiety. Remember the cry of the disciples in the boat. These are our anxieties. Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? Don't you care that I am at the end of my rope? Don't you care that my marriage hurts? It hurts me. Don't you care that I am afraid every single day of my life? Don't you care that I can't reach my kids? That I can't provide for our needs? That I can't crawl above my temptations? And we yearn for something different than the situation that God has us in. Now, I should have waxed eloquent until now, leading you happily through humility and God's mighty hand and being all exalted and stuff, not mentioning the word pride, and then drop it like a bombshell in verse 7. Now, this, this should rattle you. If you are anxious, it is a sign of pride. Fear and anxiety are overwhelmingly the product of pride, a sign of what's within. Worry is a sin. Anxiety is a sin. It is the sin that crashed the paradise of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they ate the forbidden fruit, not so that they would be wise, but because they believed the lie that God did not have their best interests at heart that God was holding out and that it was up to them to reach out and grab the thing that they thought that they needed. No one identifies worry as pride. How does that even make sense? I thought this sermon was going to be a simple tying up of loose ends. A couple more encouragements, some warnings, happy little benediction. Instead, Peter has us striking at the core of our darkest sin. Lewis again. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite it is Christ- in Christian morals is called humility. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. How can worry be criticized as pride? It is thus. When you are filled with anxiety, with fear, it is because you believe that you must solve your own problems in your own strength. You dwell in the insomnia of fretting and plotting. Worry is not trusting in God's power, provision, control, and goodness. Worry is wrestling in futility with the things of God. Suffering, 
death, sickness, hardship, fear, war, lies, sorrow. Worry means the only God you and I trust in is ourselves. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? In fact, God cares for you more than you know. Why trust him? Why submit to him? Because he cares for you far more than you know. Matthew 6, 25 and following. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own troubles. The antidote to fear and worry is not focusing on fear and worry. It's not head in the sand. It's not muscling through either. The antidote is knowing God better, seeking, clawing, hungering to know the crucified Christ better. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first God. It's also the only way to fight sin. It's the only way to fight anxiety. Open your Bible. Read of his mercy and might. Get to know God, your creator. And it's good. It's very good news. I'm going to go through verse 8 kind of fast. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded. We look at 1 Peter 1.13. Prepare your minds, literally, gird up the loins of your mind for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be watchful. Look at Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, stay awake. It's actually the very same word. Be watchful. Stay alert. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Or when he will call you.
the devil prowls. Look at Job 1, 6 and 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along among them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Jonah 1.17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. It's the same word, devour and swallow. Satan wants to utterly consume anyone he can deceive. The devil is real. The devil is powerful and is a personal spiritual being, meaning he's not some ethereal force out there. Wayne Grudem writes, far from saying Christians should fear such a formidable adversary as the devil, Peter says, resist him. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. Here's the promise. Christian resistance to the devil's attacks will be successful. Well, while it is wrong to ignore the devil's existence, it is also wrong to cower before him. Instead, resist him. How's this for a parallel? James 4. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Sounds like Peter, right? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When the unbeliever succumbs to the devil, it's because they can't help it. It can't be done without God. When the Christian succumbs, it's because we don't want to resist. We don't want to fight. We desire, actually, what tempts us. But Christ changes our desires, enables our resistance. Back to James, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He says this because pride, in this case, makes one glad, and mourning accepts the humility of our wretched state. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now that passage is thick with good theology, but paying attention to verse 6 and 7, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is the, the promise of Scripture that counters all our fears, all our temptations, every spiritual attack. Verse 9, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Wayne Grudem goes on to say, persecution is the roar of the devil by which he tries to intimidate believers into capitulating, into giving up at the prospect of suffering. The roaring devil is just the crazed anger of a defeated enemy. And if the Christian does not fear his ferocious bark, they will never be consumed by his bite. Verse 10 and 11. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The pains, the sufferings, the hardships of this life are not small. Your worries are not insignificant. These verses attest that your struggles are not little. They are, in fact, cosmic. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. After you have suffered for a little while, verse 10, Paul says this is a light, momentary affliction. The God of all grace, for it is by grace you have been saved, not by works or by worry, who has called you by his eternal glory in Christ. Again, Paul, the eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. Will himself restore what is broken, confirm or seal unto completion, strengthen the weak and weary, and establish or plant you on the most firm foundation of Christ's death and resurrection. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a fallen world. And here lies the question that both the believer and the unbeliever must answer. Will you hand over your life to the one who knows your days, who knows your heart? who knows your every concern? Will you entrust your life to the one who has never, not once, relinquished control of the waves or the wind? He has not relinquished control over governments, economies, or spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Will you cast all your anxieties into the mighty hand of God? Will you repent of your pride and stop relying upon yourself to solve your problems as if there were not a God above. Peter ends his letter with a final greeting. By Silvanus, or also Silas, that's the same, Silas is partnered with Peter and Timothy, sorry, Paul and Timothy in 2 Corinthians and the two letters of Thessalonians a faithful brother as I regard him, which can either mean that he composed the letter for Peter or was the letter's courier. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. All that I have just written about, written about salvation in Christ, persecution being a gift to purify your faith, and the ability of God to preserve you through trial unto glory, all of it is true. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, the church that is in Rome, you're just going to have to trust me on that one, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. And that's John Mark, as in the gospel according to Mark, Mark. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Christians are to treat one another with the affection and closeness of true family. Peace to all of you 
who are in Christ. Let's end on this phrase, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Did you ever wonder how it was that Jesus could sleep during the kind of storm that makes seasoned professional fishermen fill with terror? You might have dismissed it. I have for many years. But by saying, oh, I have for many years by saying that Jesus is God. And he knew that in a few minutes that he would just make a whisper, calm the storm, say peace and be still. But I want you to think about the character of Jesus throughout the whole of Scripture. He never acts to save himself. Instead, he always and only does the will of the Father to give glory to the Father. What if Jesus could sleep in the boat because he completely trusted his life into the care of his Father? What if he could endure persecution, crucifixion, even death, because he trusted in the goodness and the greatness of God his Father? What if today you would give up your worrying? Stop asking, God, don't you care that we are perishing? Instead, give your full submission, your full attention to the God who cares for you. Knowing that nothing happens outside of his sleep, uh, outside of his will, rather, uh, <laughs> I bet you would sleep knowing that. I bet you would sleep better through the storm tonight as the ushers are going to come forward we're going to be silent for a while to contemplate what worries we hold they are idols in front of God and then we will celebrate communion together and if you have placed your trust fully in Jesus join us it's an open table Let's spend some time contemplating what makes us anxious. We often speak of the offense of the gospel. And the gospel is offensive because it is so counter to our human pride. It challenges us in two ways. We see God who is so far greater than us. And we are forced to see ourselves as far worse than we had ever previously imagined. Sinners, helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. We must understand these things to comprehend the gospel at all. I am, by nature, a proud sinner. And I, as I grew in understanding of God's goodness and my sinfulness, this challenged my pride. But Leighton hit on something here this morning that I want to remind you of and just draw attention to. And that is that the gospel is utterly defeating of pride 
as we grow in the understanding of Christ's love for us. I've heard a, a thousand sermons on pride and why we should not be proud and how to pretend to be humble. But genuine humility comes from knowing God's goodness. And as we grow in our understanding of how much God loves us and cares for us, that he is genuinely good to us and has planned good for us, we can let go of pride, let go of fear and anxiety, and trust the goodness of our God.